Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome back to Football Americana. My guest this episode really needs no introduction, but in case you guys have been living under a rock and have not watched any soccer in the last 15 years, Becky Sauerbrunn is a center back for the Portland Thorns and the U.S. Women's National Team captain. Just some little basic things like a two-time World Cup champion, Olympic gold medalist. I think, though, I was thinking about probably the best accomplishment you've had, Becky, and the best team you've ever played on was was maybe the reserves leading up to the 2011 World Cup, uh, where we got to play with Lori Lindsay and a few others. I don't even remember who else was on the team, but I'm thinking that was probably, that should be top of your bio on Wikipedia. They left that part out. Um, I'm shocked. I'm yeah, shocked. I know. It was pretty messed up. You were but, by uh, the best team ever. I know. That's, that's what I was thinking, but it's weird it's not anywhere on the internet. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Becky's from St. Louis. And so I want to start off a little bit just tell us about your youth soccer upbringing and you know what got you hooked on the game and set you on the path to eventually do what you do now. I started around five and my parents threw me into Olivet Athletic Association. So my town has this athletic association and you would play at the local park. So I would walk over there with my parents on the weekend and play with a lot of my school friends because our elementary school was just across the street. And so they had soccer, they had softball and basketball. So I kind of got thrown into a bunch of sports really young playing with a bunch of my friends and we were having such a great time on the soccer team that that team became an indoor boys soccer team with Becky. Um, and so I played a lot of indoor soccer and that was really big in St. Louis as well, because we had the St. Louis ambush and the St. Louis steamers. Um, so I played a lot of soccer indoors and with boys at the beginning of my career. Yeah. Very interesting. I think that's definitely unique to our kind of time frame of coming up in the game. Cause nowadays there's so much girls programming that it's not as common was there a time where you remember thinking like, whoa, I'm, I think I could do something with this. Like I'm a little bit special or, or different than anyone else in, in the area. I mean, I never, I never really thought I was special, but I just knew I really loved playing soccer. And so probably around the age of 14, I was doing Missouri ODP 
and I made the state team. And then you know how the state team goes and does like a regional camp and then you make a regional team. And so when I made the regional team around 14 or 15, that's when I was like, wow, there's actually like a pathway to the youth national teams and then potentially the senior national team. I love playing soccer. Let's see how far this can go. I should have known you were going to say something like that. You never thought you were special, but I'm sure it, it does make sense at that point. I think ODP was was like that for a lot of us. So it was like the, the you could see the avenue to get there and how you work your way up. And for anyone competitive, it's like, okay, well, here's here's what I got to do. And remember those um, Boca Raton regional tournaments that we would go oh, to? yes. Every, Every Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, yeah. I would see like my family for like 10 Thanksgivings. Exactly, yeah. Um, so did you, were you a soccer fan growing up? Did you watch soccer? As much as I could, I, I watched a lot of, like I said, the indoor soccer um, in St. Louis. And then my dad would take me to collegiate games. So I remember watching UNC play Mizzou and just being like, this is amazing. Um, but there wasn't a lot on TV. And so I don't think I really got to start watching soccer seriously until college. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I th- again, I think it's like, it just shows how much things have changed. And something I want to ask you about, you know, getting into your pro career, Throughout your long professional career, there were times when there wasn't even a professional league in the U.S. And I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about how the landscape is different now than when you left college and we're looking ahead to, you know, how, how do I keep playing soccer? How is it different from a player coming out now as a rookie into NWSL? Oh, it's, it's so much better now. And I'm so glad for all the players that when they're done playing collegially, if they even want to play collegially, which is a whole nother thing. There's just so many options for them to play now domestic with the NWSL, but then so many international leagues that are doing so great all across the globe. So, I mean, I remember my senior year of college really being down about my last season and being like, could this be like the last time I'm playing competitive soccer? And, you know, maybe I could play semi-pro, but there really wasn't an avenue for me to make a living off playing. And that's really what I wanted to do. I really wanted to play professionally. And so the it's such a stark difference now, and I'm so glad for it. I think the women's landscape has just exponentially grown since we were in college, and there's still a lot of growth to be had, but it's it's amazing to bear witness to it. Yeah, that's well said. Would you have gone, if you could have gone pro out of high school, do you think you would have still gone to college, or were you so set at that point that you might have played professionally straight from high school? Well, I know my mom definitely wanted me to get a degree. I mean, she kept saying that, like, please finish your, your collegiate and get your degree. I'm like, sure, mom. Um, but in my heart of heart, if I had been talented enough, I probably would have gone pro as soon as possible. Yeah, I think it, that change, would, I think, would have changed the entire landscape for a lot of us who would have had that decision to make. Obviously, it wasn't that was not even a consideration. But... I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about what it's like playing in Portland. You know, in so many ways, I think Portland really set the bar for what it could look like and feel like to have a really professional atmosphere, especially on game day. And I just know I've only played as a away team there, but I'm curious what it's like week in, week out, being part of that club and feeling the support of the fan base. I mean, I, I don't know what they did here to get it so right, but the the support here, the fan base, I mean, super involved, um, always showing up. There's a very interesting dialogue between the front office and with the supporters. Um, and so there's a lot of discourse. So they feel really involved and they, I think that actually gives them a sense like that it really matters that they are there and that they support the group. And there's also open dialogue between the players and the supporters groups, which I think is, I, I had never been a part really of a organization where it was so organized like that. I mean, we've always like with the blue crew, 
with FC Casey, we would always like go and talk to them after their game, but it wasn't about like, how's the front office stuff going and how can, what, what can we do for you? You know? Um, so it's, it's been a real pleasure and it's been, um, interesting throughout my career. I think each team I've played for is kind of up the professional professionalism level. Um, and so to be here in Portland and to kind of see how it's run in the infrastructure and, um, all the employees and getting to know them and what they do, um, it's pretty special. Yeah, that's really interesting insight. In, in what format do you, I'm just curious, how does the, that communication take place? Is it in person that you guys are having meetings or is it through like email chains? How are you actually going back and forth with the fan base? It's been happening for a while now. And I think it's been more kind of like a city hall where some of their, I think they call them like captains of the supporters groups. And then some of the players will go and, and actually just talk and chat. And I think during COVID, it potentially happened during like with Zoom and things like that. But from what I know, I think they had a recent one, um, maybe a few weeks ago, just to kind of like reopen um, communication. That's very interesting. And that's something that from the outside, you wouldn't really have any idea about how it works. But I think that's, it's fascinating. It shows why I can imagine why they feel such ownership over the successes and failures and everything. So I love that. I want to transition a little bit into your national team career. And I think what what makes your national team career even more special than it already is, in my opinion, is that you're one of the first players from kind of our generation. That makes us feel maybe a little too old, but you know what I mean by that, to have made your mark as a pro and to kind of have earned your way onto the national team. You know, a lot of players in our age group, it was either you were on the national team or not, and kind of your pro career was tangential to that or your way to kind of stay sharp. And now what we're seeing is that is the way to get on the national team is through through competing and uh, performing week in and week out in your club environment. So, I mean, fast forwarding, you have over 200 caps and that's since 2008 when you, you first got called in, which is, I mean, over 200 caps with, with the competitiveness of that team is just that in and of itself is unbelievable. But I'm curious to hear you talk about your evolution from somebody trying to break into that team to now being such a leader on the team and how that transition happened for you at obviously over some years, but speak a little bit about that. Yeah. First, I just want to say, you're absolutely right. There's no way I would have gotten onto the national team without the WPS and without playing for the Washington Freedom and playing against the Brianna Scurries and the Abby Wambach. So like, I'm so glad that that is now the pathway to getting onto the national team is that it is club focused and you have to perform week in and week out in order to earn a spot with the national team. I'm so glad we have gotten to that point. My journey with the national team, I mean, it's, it's hard to kind of, I don't know when the transition exactly happened, but I would say maybe after 2015, when you kind of lose the Abby Wambachs, Lori Kolebny, Shannon Box, Christy Rampone, and, you know, they retire and that second kind of tier player, like they really have to start owning the team and owning the leadership. And you just kind of grow into it eventually. And I mean, you know me, you've, you've played with me and against me for so long that I'm definitely not like a vocal leader. I'm not like, rah, rah, let's do this. I'm going to yell in your face. And it's been for me an individual journey of figuring out what my leadership style is and also valuing that leadership style, even if it's different from what you would think as like a stereotypical captain or leader. And so the more authentic and more comfortable I got with myself, I think the better my leadership has become. And it's still so much, you know, a growth growth area for me is my leadership and definitely still working on all the, the vocal and the energetic and all those things. But um, I've really come to realize that the more authentic I am to myself, the better relationships I'm creating with my players and the more respect, respect I garner. 
And that's such an amazing lesson, I think, for those of us who have played with you over the years. I do feel like that ownership of who you are and what you bring and, and to lead through that and, and set an example through that is so, so valuable. And it's something that people don't initially think of when they think of leadership. They think of what you're saying, which is the loud, like yelling at everyone and being so confident all the time. Talk a little bit about, I'm curious to hear you delve in a little bit more about your leadership style now that you said that in what ways, like what's intentional about what you do and what have you realized that people follow and maybe in what ways do they see you as a leader that maybe is just who you are and not an intentional thing that you're you're thinking of displaying? I think I've I've really have tried to be approachable throughout my career. And I think that's really helped because for me, building relationships is one of the most important parts of my leadership style and really trying to figure out who people are, how best they work, where they fit into team dynamics, making sure they're, you know, coming along within the team dynamics. And you know how there's sometimes outliers and you just kind of need to like kind of usher everyone in together. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily think that's something I have had to intentionally do. I think that's something that luckily has come pretty natural. Um, and what was the second part of your question? Well, yeah, then then I'm curious about what maybe has been intentional where you're like, I need to talk in this way or, or say this to a rookie or, you know, something you're you're like, okay, now as a leader, I have to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I think intentionally it's bringing on that next tier of leader. And I think there are a lot of players like myself who never really saw themselves in leadership positions, but knowing that there are so many different ways to lead and each one is just as important as the other. And so seeing and spotting those things in in players and then having them acknowledge it and believe in it and then bring it to the group and add it to the table. That has to be very intentional. Yeah. And and speaking of that, you know, the team has obviously changed a lot outside of just the personnel over the years. You know, you named some of the players who were there when you started, who left. Besides the people there, how would you describe the change in the actual team environment and the feeling surrounding the team from the time in which you were breaking your way onto the scene until what it's like now? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say when I first got onto the team, you really had to like earn your way into getting respect. And I think because there was not a lot of turnover, I think if you were kind of new, people weren't really willing to invest in you because they really didn't know how long you were going to be around. Because a lot of us were like in, out, in, out, and then you're like never seen again. I would say that now it's probably a little bit more welcoming. And I think there's a better understanding that there's going to be a lot more turnaround and turnover with players. And so the quicker you can bring people in, the quicker that they get on to the same page of how we learn things, how we play, how we do things, the better off the group is. Because we kind of all know, like, if you're not performing well, you're not going to be on that team for very long. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I certainly can appreciate what you're saying about that feeling of, you know, there were the people who were there all the time. And now it does look like even just looking at the rosters, you know, there are new names in there all the time. And a piece of that, I, I believe, certainly has to do with the structure of how, how things are changing and the sustainability of NWSL and other leagues around the world where players have a chance to highlight what they're doing outside of national team camp. It's not the only way to, to make it there anymore. So I want to segue into an, another really important area where you are a leader um, in more ways than one, but as the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association president and being involved in the recent CBA negotiations. So just for anyone listening who isn't so aware, I'm sure everyone's seen the headlines surrounding the big historic news of achieving equal pay, but just going one layer further into that 
for those who maybe aren't that familiar with the deals that, that were signed. The new CBAs for the U.S. women and U.S. men's national team essentially see the World Cup bonuses from FIFA pooled together and split among the teams equally. So this makes the U.S. the first country to pay its women's and men's national team equally. I want to delve into this a little bit with you, you having been somebody who is a huge leader in this process, to talk a little bit not just about the pay piece, but about the structure. Because for people who are unaware, the U.S. women's national team players up until this this new CBA were contracted throughout the year and were paid a salary from U.S. soccer. And now with this deal, the structure of uh, the player's employment has actually changed. So can you explain that in a way that maybe everyone could understand and explain the importance of that change? Sure. Yeah. So I would say the the need for contracts had always been because the stability of our professional league was always up in the air. And so we felt that if you wanted players to be able to play soccer and concentrate on being just a soccer player, we needed some sort of contract. Um, and because our professional teams weren't able to provide that, potentially because there wasn't even a professional league or because the teams couldn't afford it, we needed it to come from somewhere. And so U.S. soccer took the burden on of those contracts. And now with this new CBA, we've gotten to a point where our leagues are so stable and we're able to make a livable wage from the leagues and from our professional teams that we are more easily able to go to a pay-to-play model, which is what the men have been doing from, I imagine, the inception of, of their program, certainly for the last several, several decades. Yeah, which also mimics um, and mirrors what, what happens throughout the rest of the world as well. Was there any fear or are there things that you guys as as a group lost in that process in order to gain equal pay in, in other areas that you were nervous? Or was there any conversation about, is this the right thing to do? Or was it very clear to the group that that's what needed to happen? In the past, because U.S. soccer had never offered us a contract that was similar to the men's in the respect that the same tiering of play, of team um, that we played against, the amount of money for a win, a loss, a tie, or for a game appearance, because those were never similar. We nev- never really felt like that we could afford to go to a pay-to-play. But now because this new CBA is offering the same rate of pay, the same opportunity, um, it makes a huge difference for us. So it was easier to change now just with U.S. soccer agreeing to equal pay. That makes a huge difference. And then I'll also say, again, the stability of the leagues. How does it change the mindset of the players, you think, to now, now obviously, even more rides on a call-up, making a roster? Um, it, I think it changes the onus on, on the player to, to do those things if they want to benefit financially. Does that, do you think, change any of the thought processes or is everyone's trying to do those things regardless? I mean, I would always hope that players are trying to do those things regardless and are always trying to perform at their absolute best could there have been players over the years that, you know, knew that they were contracted and didn't feel like they had to perform as well during the league potentially, but I would really hope in the player's heart of hearts, they were all doing the right things. Um, But yeah, now absolutely with this new CBA, the onus will be on performances with your club in order to earn a call up. Yeah. And I want to, in a second, just kind of go into what that means for NWSL and what that means for NWSL's future, because that is a huge, you know, the reliance on NWSL in particular, as as well as, you know, if players decide to play internationally, but it it really does um, say a lot for where the league has, has come from and where we are at this point. Before we go into that, 
as kind of a way to to round out this piece of the conversation. I did talk to Walker Zimmerman last episode and talked a little bit about the men's national team perspective on this. And one thing we had kind of discussed was that prior to this and over the years, there was really, it wasn't a negative relationship at all. There just was no relationship between the men's and women's players and teams. Do you feel that this has kind of bridged that gap? Do you feel in a way like you guys are maybe rooting for them a little more or closer tied to the men or how has it changed the relationship between the teams? I would definitely say that there really was no relationship. There might've been individual relationships, just, you know, crossing paths along the way. But I remember when we first kind of started with equal pay for equal play, that the messaging was very much the women versus the men. And some of the messaging could have been really negative. So I actually think it hurt the relationship. And then most recently while working together for this CBA, um, I think that bridge has definitely been gapped bridged. What, I don't even know what I'm saying. The gap, <laughs> the gap has been bridged. Um, and I think Walker has been huge. I mean, he's been doing a lot of the media when it comes to the CBA. And I know he's been really instrumental with working with the men's PA who has had to work with the women's PA with works with us soccer. So there's been so many things that had to um, happen for the CBA to, to come into fruition. I've always been rooting for the men. I've always wanted them to do, to do well, because I know that when the men do well in general soccer in the States, just does better. Does this, now that we're tied together from the 2022 and 23 World Cups, am I rooting for them more? No, because I'm always going to root for them. Um, But I also want them to do awesome all the time. Um, And we will financially, both of us gain from that. Yeah. I think it interestingly ties the groups um, because everyone, I mean, success, you know, you, you want each other to succeed, but now the success is really tied together in a different way. Curious to hear you talk a little bit about now taking this back to NWSL. And I think, like you said, this deal wouldn't have been possible without the strength of NWSL as, as a place to play and for players to know that they could be employed every day of the year as a professional soccer player. How, where do you think the league needs to go from here? What's the next step for the league now that, you know, that it's been monumental with the NWSL and NWSL Players Association signing the CBA, as well as you know, just a lot of history being made with CBAs, basically. What's next? Or what's the next level? I mean, I just want to also underline what you just said about the NWSL PA and how important it was to be unionized and to get that first CBA. Um, That's huge. That goes so much to the stableness, stability of the league. Um, What's next for the NWSL? Um, I still think that there are organizations that need to be invested in further, whether it's in their training environments, um, whether it's staffing, um, technical staffing, medical staffing, those kind of things. I still think that there are gains to be made in those areas. I would love to see more broadcasting deals and bigger sponsorships and putting more money into those parts of the game because I think this product is so good, it needs to be seen by more people. Um, So I would really love to see, you know, playing on CBS, big CBS more often just to get more views. Sponsorship, I already said, I think expansion is huge. Um, There seems to be a lot of interest. I think the more expansion um, with teams, um, even if they're tied with MLS or not, just having those groups coming in, I think garnering a lot of interest is huge. I would love to see more events like uh, CONCACAF Champions League. I think that would be great if we can start doing something like that. So curious... um also to hear your opinion on some of the most exciting upcoming players in NWSL, like who, who is the future? Who, you know, five or 10 years from now, are we going to be like talking to having over 200 caps in your opinion? 
I mean, I, I'm going to pick somebody close to home. I'm going to pick Sam Coffee. I have just, she's a delight. I have loved how she has conducted herself, how she plays. She's just a, like very professional. Um, I'm really excited for her. She got her first call up with the national team. So she's going to start her national team adventure soon. And she's just, just a great player, like a player you want to play with um, both on and off the field. And so I think she's someone to really look out for. That's a great one. Um, fun fact, I actually used to train her because she's from this area when she was much younger. I can't take credit for any of who she is now, but I used to do some individual sessions with her over the years. And so I've kept in touch with her dad a little bit and watched her progress. So I have been overjoyed to see her um, playing in the league. And like I said, I can take zero credit for it, but I do kind of feel like a little bit of a proud mom in some way. Well, you should. And it now makes a lot of sense why she's so technical and so efficient on the ball. That's definitely your influence there. I, I probably... I probably did about 10 sessions with her when she was maybe 14. So I'm not sure my coaching is that good, but thank you. (laughs) Maybe it is. As we transition into the end of the episode where we're going to do our false nine, which is nine rapid fire questions, just want to thank you. I think your insight into um, the the far reaching implications of the CBA and your work on that as and as a professional player through the various leagues and seeing the evolution of the women's game um, literally has made history in such, such a big way. So I know you're very humble, but I hope you've taken some time to appreciate the the work you've done to really progress the game to an absolute new level. So that being said, we're going to do our false nine. Um, Starting off, what all-time match would you want to attend? All-time match I'd want to attend probably any Champions League final with Arsenal in it. I don't care who they're playing against. And having them win. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> you have to select somebody to take a penalty kick to save your life. Who's taking it? Megan Rapino. Quick answer. Yeah. I love the quick answer. She's very good at penalty kicks, let's be honest. And she wouldn't even be phased. She's no. Like, okay. She's like, oh, your life's on the line? Mm. Up or for down. better, for worse, whatever. She's going to go for it. <laughs> first match you remember watching? Oh, first match I remember watching probably was one of the 1999 Women's World Cup. I was in Chicago and watch them play live. That's like one of the ones, earliest ones I really remember. Uh, this is a sidetrack, but was there a player on that team that you in particular wanted to play like or idolize? Oh, Carla Oberbeck. And that, a- that maybe actually gave away the next, the next false nine question, but it's who'd you have a poster of in your room growing up? Oh, you know, I actually really didn't have any posters, but if I did, it would have been Carla Oberbeck. Yeah, I figured, I figured. That's a good one. Favorite stadium you've played in? Favorite stadium would probably be Wembley for the 2012 Olympic final. Okay, that's a decent one. Yeah, um, that's not bad. Not, there's like 80,000 oh, people there. Average atmosphere, whatever. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to say while Crystal Dunn is out on maternity leave, who is the best uh, US women's national team dancer in the locker room? Oh, dancer. I would probably say. Uh, I would say Sonic because she like definitely does dance, but I'm going to go with Kelly because she's so goofy when she's dancing that it's actually really endearing. Okay. I don't know if that was a nice thing or mean thing about Sonic. So I'm not sure if she listens to us, if she's going to feel good about what you just said, but why don't we just cut that question and I'll start again and say, um, who's the best dancer? Ooh, myself. We're going to say me. Yeah, that is Definitely the most arrogant thing you've ever said. I know, probably. 
you have a favorite pair of sneakers? Favorite pair of sneakers. Yes. Um, am I allowed to say that I love Adidas sneakers on this? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm in the door for the question. So I've got a Y3 high top Adidas pair that I absolutely love. Love it. Your go-to snack. Go-to snack is probably, oh my gosh, uh, hummus and crackers. Very healthy. This is my favorite question of these. Pick up pet peeve. Pick up pet peeve. Oh, that's a good one. Probably the person when the ball goes out of bounds is pretending that the ball didn't go out of bounds. I don't, I like following rules. And so when people break the rules and then they pretend that they didn't break the rules. Yeah. I definitely get a little peeved. That's a good one. I can imagine the death stare they get. Hey, can I ask you that question? I want to know what your pickup pet peeve is. Um, I, I really don't like when people uh, try to like do too many nutmegs or like fancy dribbling tricks. Like to me, it's a serious game. I get it's pickup, but I don't like the like trickiness. I want to pass or play. So unless they're really good and they can do that and they would do that in a game. I'm like not surprised. Now you're making me want to play. Okay. Okay. Now I'm inspired. But (laughs) no, I I really appreciate your time. Uh, Thank you so much. Good luck in in all your upcoming games, World Cup qualifying. We obviously are following you. And congratulations again on really a historic year so far that I am hoping will just get better. All right. Thank you so much. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.